Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, good morning. Thanks, Brent. It is, it is great to be back up here after having uh, a couple of weeks off. And uh, we are going to get into Revelation here in just a minute, but I, I do want to circle back to a little bit about what we talked about uh, the past couple of weeks. I'm thankful for uh, Wes and Brent uh, presenting the messages the past couple of weeks and really focusing on this, uh, us on this really important idea of open house and what we're doing, that event that we're going to have starting on, on Easter Sunday and carrying through for the six weeks following that. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of things as reminders. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those two messages, I highly suggest you listen to them. You can find them on our website. You can find them on Facebook. You can find them on our app. Um, whatever, whatever way you access those messages. But uh, a couple things that I just want to highlight. First of all, this idea of open house is really just all about kind of like a similar to an open house, like a, a real estate open house, where we are inviting people just to come and to check out church. And really, in a lot of ways, people who haven't been to, especially people who haven't been to church in a while or people who don't normally come to church, we want them just to kind of come into this environment and feel welcome and have an opportunity to just kind of check things out. And that's really what it's about. We are offering a food truck, but that's not kind of, but, but, but we're not offering it as kind of like a bait and switch to where like we get the people in and then we're going to like, you know, try to convert them with a hard sell or something like that, right? So don't feel like if you're, we know that you're bringing people and you're inviting people that you love and that you care about and that you don't want them to come into an environment where we are going to kind of violate the expectation of what you have set for them. That is our expectation. That's why we're trying to be clear about this is that we want people to come check it out. We want people to see the church. We want people to get to know people within the church, maybe people that they don't know, right? Maybe they don't know any other Christians and they have ideas about who Christians are, right? We want them to actually meet some real Christians and get to know who the church really is. And also, we believe that God has true things to say to people, right? That's one of the things. We believe that, and so in our lesson, uh, in, our, in our series called Lessons from Our Living Room, we're going to be talking about some of these things that God has to say about some important topics that all of us face, whether we are Christians or not, that we face in the world that we live in. And the idea of the living room is that the living room, of course, is the place where you invite friends to sit down, uh, to feel at home, to feel comfortable, and then typically that's the place where you have kind of those real conversations with friends and family that you love and that you care about. And so that's the idea that, that we're presenting here. That's what we're focusing on in that six-week series. And so as you're inviting people, which as Brent, as Brent said, we're really excited about the fact that so many of you took those invitations this past week, and, uh, and, 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 and we have some more out for you to grab as you leave here this morning. But that's the thing, is that be thinking about that one person, because here's a big part of this, is that as much as we are going to do once people arrive here on Easter Sunday and the following six weeks, uh, we need everybody on board to be able to do this to actually bring people here. Right? We can't do this without you, in other words. And we need you to be praying about who God might be uh, placing on your heart to invite and to encourage to come here starting on Easter Sunday, okay? So that's where we're coming from, and, and that's what our heart is in all of this. Don't feel like, again, you're going to get a bait and switch with your friend or your neighbor that you're bringing here. We're just to, we just really are inviting them so that they can feel welcome here, so they can hear a little bit about God's truth, and then they can decide for themselves what is actually true, what is what God is saying uh, about my life and about what I'm facing. Does it have validity to it? And we want them to be able to weigh that and to see that in those times, okay? So, uh, Thank you for being a part of that, and we'll continue to pray as we look forward to Easter Sunday in a few weeks. So, um, as we dive back into Revelation, though, this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question to think about. It's a question that might seem obvious at first, but I want you to really think about in terms of how you would answer this and why uh, it's a critical question. But why does it matter that the Bible is true? Why does it matter that the Bible is true? Right? As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, 
The scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, is God's word to us and that it is true. But why does it matter that the Bible is true? Um, How about this question? How much of the Bible is actually true? Is all of it true? Do you consider all of it to be true? And at the same time, does all of it have the same kind of truth in our lives? Does it all have authority over our lives? Or does it just speak to true things in general? What do we mean when we say that the Bible is true? And maybe this question, who gets to say what is true and what is not? Uh, we know that as we come to Scripture, any, all of us in this room may have different interpretations from time to time on what we are reading and certainly how to apply certain pieces of the Bible to our lives. And so while we may believe that it's true, who gets to say exactly what is true and what is not? And these are questions, believe it or not, that the church has d- dealt with throughout its entire 2,000-year history. It actually began with the question way back when in the early church of what actually is God's Word? What is a part of the Bible? What is actually inspired of God? Because during that time, there were a lot of writings and a lot of other things that people wrote down in the Christian church and even books, so to speak, that uh, they thought maybe should have been included in, in Scripture. And so the church had to decide with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what actually is God's inspired Word? And then we have what's handed down to us, which is called the canon or the Bible that we have today, which is God's Word to us. But it wasn't always as clear throughout church history. Also throughout church history, there have been different views on the inspiration of Scripture, that even as we've had God's Word, even as we've had these books and we've had the canon, what exactly is inspired in all of this? There have been some biblical scholarship, in fact, throughout church history, and even some aspects of the church who have rejected things like the supernatural things that happen in the Bible, the miracles that happen in the Bible, the supernatural accounts. More recently, in modern church history, especially in the West, there's been a debate about what's been referred to as the inerrancy of the Bible. What does it mean to say that the Bible is inerrant? Does it mean that the Bible is inerrant in everything it teaches? Does it mean that the Bible is inerrant in every way without mixture of error? Does it mean that everything that we read in the Bible, even the numbers and the historical accounts are true? Or how do we understand that to be as well? As you might imagine, these are issues that have led to some pretty hot debates throughout the 2,000 years of church history. In fact, it's probably one of the primary things that have led to different denominations, uh, in some cases churches and denominations splitting over these aspects of Christian practice and understanding. And I think it it makes sense why this would happen and why it's so important. Because we understand that fundamentally, especially for our tradition, Uh, In the Evangelical Bible Church, we understand in our tradition that we believe that the Bible is true, that it's the basis of our faith and our understanding of who God is, right? And so those disagreements often lead to some pretty big, um, some pretty big breakups, if you will, fractures. So I'll ask again, the question I asked earlier, why does it matter that the Bible is true? How would you answer that personally, and how would you answer that in general? As we dive back into Revelation, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19 this morning, and we're going to answer that question, uh, at least in part, and probably the questions also that surround it as well. We're going to at least address those and provide a working answer for you as we go forward. And since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book, let's review a little bit. We're going to be, as I said, in Revelation chapter 19. You know if you've been with us or you're familiar with the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation has 22 chapters in it. Right? And so we are really on the home stretch of this book. We're getting to the end of it. We've got a few more weeks left. We've got three more weeks left after this week. And uh, as we head down the home stretch, I think one thing that we want to realize in all of this is that the, the book of Revelation is not winding down to an end. It's actually ramping up to an end. Right? These last 
few chapters that we're hitting on are actually the end, they're actually where everything has been building up to. It's the climax of the story, if you will, as we get to these last three chapters. Everything has been serving this purpose of arriving at this end. And I think it's amazing, I think it's also important to think about the fact that not only are these the concluding chapters of the book of Revelation, but these are actually the concluding chapters of the Bible as well. And not just in, sense of, in the sense of order, in, in the sense that they're the last chapters of the Bible, but they're actually the, concluding functional, the functional concluding chapters of the biblical story. In other words, they're bringing all of the biblical story to its end, to its purpose, and to its goal. So these are critically important chapters that we're hitting on uh, this morning and over the next few weeks. And these chapters tie everything together, again, not just for Revelation, but for the entire Bible. And so in Revelation 19, we actually find ourselves in a bigger section that started back in Revelation 17, which is known as the final judgment narrative of Scripture, or the final judgment narrative of Revelation. And I know when I say the phrase final judgment, our first, the first impression for many of us, what comes to mind is hellfire and brimstone, right, almost automatically. And I'm not going to lie to you, there is literal hellfire and brimstone that we see actually in this chapter. <laughs> so it's actually the lake of fire and sulfur, but same, same thing, same difference. But I think one thing we want to remember is that final judgment is not just about the lake of fire and sulfur. The bigger point about final judgment that Revelation shows us is that it's through God's wise and righteous judgment that God is making a way. That the end is not fire, lake of fire, brimstone, and judgment. The end is God making a way. God making a way for our redemption. God making a way for us to be with him for eternity. And God making a way for his new creation to glorify him for eternity. In other words, God is making a way for hope in this broken world. And that this is the hope that we have. And in this section that we're going to read today, it's bringing us to the place that we'll progressively arrive at over the next three weeks as well as all these things tie together. Now, I know I've said three weeks a couple of times, and if you're doing the math already in your head, kind of like what Brent was doing, you're realizing that we're going to be in Revelation on Easter Sunday. <laughs> and we are going to be on Revelation, in Revelation on Easter Sunday. That wasn't our initial plan. We were initially going to end it a little bit before, but I think this speaks a little bit to the reality that, you know, the open house thing is such an important idea for us that we took two weeks off uh, specifically to talk about it. And also, I think what you'll notice is as we get to Revelation chapter 22, which is what we're going to be at on Easter Sunday, this is actually a message that lines up really well with the message of Easter. It's a really hopeful passage. Revelation 22, if you haven't read it or you're not familiar with it, is about Jesus saying that he's going to return. I am coming back. I am coming back. And so what we get is really this idea of the, of the purpose of the resurrection is that Jesus is returning to us, and it's full of hope. It's one of the, probably the most, I would say, undoubtedly, one of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture, and it fits so well with understanding both the reason for the resurrection and the reason that we have hope. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not sure I want to bring my friend or family member to hear Revelation on Easter Sunday, let me assure you, there are no seven-headed dragons in Revelation 22, there are no prostitutes, and there's no rivers of blood. I promise you, okay? It's all about the hopeful return of Jesus. And so we'll try not to scare him too much, other than having Wes do announcements that week. Hopefully they won't be too scared that week. I love you, man. 
With all that said, we're ready to get into Revelation 19 today. So before our two-week break, we were in chapter 18, and if you remember that, this is where John describes the vision of uh, the, the, the vision of a prostitute called the city of Babylon who is adorned in all these expensive jewelry and who's riding on the back of a beast who is the Antichrist and is drinking the blood of Christian martyrs. So this really, really crazy scene where this woman, this figure, is, is judged in, in chapter 18. And the woman, which represents Babylon, which in turn represents a city, but not an actual city, but a representation of the idolatry of things like worldly power and greed and corruption and injustice and deception, right? All of these things that it represents in this. This city that is based based upon the active uh, oppositional idolatry that opposes God's design and entraps and enslaves people spiritually in this world, right? All that's boiled up there is being judged in chapter 18. We see the judgment. Judgment happen. And uh, at the same time, it's a city that is also seen as being behind the persecution of God's people in the world. And so in this final judgment section then, the woman who is Babylon has been judged by God, and her judgment is really the first step into judging all of these kind of nefarious evil characters that we have seen set up to, the, to this point. So in other words, we've got the woman, we've got the two beasts, and we've got the dragon that have come to oppose kind of God's will and enslave people and idolatry and deception and those kinds of things. The first, the first shoe to drop, so to speak, is the woman being judged, Babylon being judged. We're going to see another judgment happen today in chapter 19. So as a quick refresher, though, on the beasts and dragons of Revelation, let's brush up on our, on our, on our beastology. Let's be careful to say that the right, the right way, beastology, um, <laughs> which is the study of beasts, I guess. Uh, but the first beast is the one that comes out of the sea in Revelation 13 and is commonly associated with the Antichrist. In Revelation 13 also, we see that his role is to influence kings and kingdoms or influence the world through things like power and greed and idolatry. The second beast, also in Revelation 13, who comes from the land, is the beast who is identified as the false prophet. It's the false prophet's role to deceive and to enslave people by deception and lies in causing them to fall into idolatry so that they worship the first beast. Okay? And then behind it all, of course, is the dragon who is Satan. And, and Satan's purposes we see in Revelation are many, but the three main ones seem to be this. Is that he's opposing God's plan in the world, that he wants to enslave people in idolatry, and that he wants to persecute those who are faithful to God. That's what, those are the things that we've seen pop up over and over again in Revelation. Um, and so in Revelation 19, and out throughout this judgment series, this is a picture of God bringing final judgment and victory over all of those who are opposing and enslaving the world by idolatry, deception, sin, and evil. And so in Revelation 19, which is what we're going to read now, we're going to see this actually break down into three distinct scenes. We're going to read the first two scenes, and then we'll talk about it, and we'll read the third one afterwards. So in Revelation 19, in verse 1, it says this, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, and for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. 
And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peal, mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, just like all the other places where we see symbolism in Revelation, these symbols are more than just mere symbols. They actually communicate something to us. The symbols and images here, almost down to the T, are communicating something significant and important theologically about God, about what God's doing, about all this stuff. Now, we don't have a chance to get, we don't have really the time to kind of go through every smaller symbol here in this passage, but I want to kind of move through the bigger symbols and kind of get a sense of where this is moving and what this is all about. And so let's talk about a few of them here. The first scene starts off in heaven after, again, the prostitute representing Babylon has been judged in the previous scene. And what we see in chapter 19 is a reaction of God's people to what God has done in judging Babylon, in removing idolatrous Babylon from the creation and judging her once and for all. And by this point, like, well, we should be kind of accustomed to this pattern because what we've seen so far in Revelation is we'll get a glimpse of God's judgment activity on the earth, and then we get a reaction of God's people in heaven. Right? I sometimes think about it, I, I watch a lot of sports, so I think about it as like the play that's going on on the field, and then sometimes the camera will cut to the crowd to see the crowd celebrating what's going on. This is kind of what's going on back and forth. Judgment happens, and then we see a vision in heaven where the people celebrate what God has done, and they praise him for what he's done. Now, admittedly, this is a little bit awkward given the subject matter of what we're looking at, right? We see all these, especially when we see these horrible scenes of judgment with death and, and rivers of blood and all these kinds of things. And then we cut to heaven and all the people are celebrating and they're jumping up and down. God's people as Christians are celebrating all this kind of stuff. And it gets a little bit awkward as we look at it at, at the first glance. But here's the thing. I think the tension between those things really highlights this aspect is that again, God's judgment and the final judgment is not about necessarily just the judgment of sin and evil, but it is making a way for a greater promise to come. And that it's necessary that this judgment would happen so that it can remove all sin and evil from creation so that new creation can be ushered in and the blessings of God's people can be realized. Now here's the thing, not only does it have cosmic effects in this case, but in this case it has a real effect personally with God's people that they're celebrating here in the sense that God is avenging what has happened to his people. Remember, the ba Babylon is representative of the responsibility of the blood of the martyrs, of, of Christian martyrs. And so as Christians are celebrating, as the church is celebrating, they're celebrating the fact that God has seen what has happened to his people in many cases, especially in the first century church and other times, right, Christians being dragged off into places like the Colosseum to be eaten by lions in front of people, people being dragged off into prison, people being killed and exiled because of their faith, and all these horrible things that are happening in the first century, right? The church is wondering the entire time, is God seeing what's going on? This is God's emphatic statement and saying, not only do I see what is going on, but I love you and I'm going to respond on your behalf and bring justice, you don't need to avenge that because vengeance is mine. 
And you see that God's justice responds to cries like that come out of Revelation chapter 6. Oh Lord, how long until you avenge this? Common theme throughout Scripture, Psalm 19, Psalm 79, all other places. How long, O oh Lord, until you will bring justice and avenge your people? How long till you will defeat your enemies and bring it all to a good purpose? Of course, that was hugely relevant to the first church. And so for all of these reasons, the people in this scene are praising God for being just and true which is a theme that's going to carry throughout this entire chapter, even on into the next scene. The aspect of God being just and true and faithful. And God is recognized as true and just because he's judged that Babylon that has brought corruption and brokenness and idolatry into the world. That he's judged her because of her immorality. And I think it's important for us to think about when we consider morality in the Bible, morality is just not a set of right and wrong things for the sake of being right and wrong. Morality is actually a reflection of God's character. We understand what is moral. We understand what is moral in Scripture because it's a reflection of God's character and how God has designed creation to work for his glory. So immorality is the opposition of God's character, of God's glory in the world. And so when you see the people praising God for judging and removing the immorality of the city of Babylon, what you see is that they're celebrating the fact that God's character and God's purpose and design for creation in the way that he wanted it to be is taking root. It's been, all the, all the immorality has been removed so the morality, so the character, so the glory of God can be reflected in every part and every aspect of creation, every relationship and every person. So the people are praising the totality of God's judgment for this reason. And of course, the totality of it is pictured here where it shows the smoke that rises forever and ever as a result of this uh, judgment on Babylon. And this picture is a picture of the totality and the completeness of God's judgment. And I've used this analogy before, but I think it's a good one to think about, is that I think in this picture it makes me think about like sin like a cancer, sin like a terminal aggressive cancer. And you know that if you're going to remove cancer from your body, if you have terminal aggressive cancer, right, you have to have all of it removed. You can't leave just a cluster of aggressive cells in your body and and maintain your health because eventually if you leave a little piece of it it will grow it will replicate it will continue to consume healthy tissue until eventually it consumes the body in the same way god's judgment is completely removing every aspect every cell of sin and every cell of immorality if you will from the world so that it's prepared for the new creation to come. There's not a speck of it that will remain. There's not a speck of evil, of sin, of injustice, of immorality that will remain, of brokenness, of corruption that will remain in the new creation. And so then as we move to the second scene, we see how God has prepared the blessing through judgment. Because this scene, this next scene, is a scene all about blessing. The final judgment leads right into this all-important scene known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the city of Babylon, which is the city of idolatry, has been judged and removed, which makes a way then for God to join himself spiritually in this communion relationship with the church, which is an eternal marriage-type relationship as it's pictured here, a committed relationship. You know, in the Old Testament, idolatry is often described uh, as spiritual adultery in God's relationship with Israel. And as Babylon represents the city of idolatry, what God is doing in final judgment is removing all of those spiritual rivals, all of those spiritual idols from all of creation so that he can make a way for his bride to be purely devoted to Jesus. 
And what you see here is what is pictured in this scene. This very vivid and important scene that represents God's reconciliation and relationship with his people eternally, but specifically what God has done to prepare the way for this marriage to come together. You know, in Scripture, not only in the Old Testament do we see God's relationship with Israel often referred to as a marriage, but we see in the New Testament, specifically the book of Ephesians, that even human marriage that we have today is designed to represent a greater purpose. It's a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. And in both of those images in Scripture, they're waiting for a fulfillment. They're a way of kind of placeholding and representing a type that is looking forward to a fulfillment one day. It's holding a place for the fulfillment of God's promises. And it's in Revelation 19 that we actually see the fulfillment of that promise come to fruition. We see this picture of the intimacy and the communion of God's people again together with God in this communion that is committed to this communion relationship that is committed for eternity. Without the final judgment, the wedding could not happen. Since, this, since to this point, there were at least a couple of barriers in place. First, there, there was no place for it to happen. But through the complete judgment of sin and evil and the removal of all of that in creation, Jesus has prepared a place for his bride to dwell with him for eternity. It's called the new creation, the new heaven, new earth in Revelation 21. We're going to see that a little bit more detail in a couple of chapters. But the second barrier was not just the renewal of place and a dwelling place, but the spiritual renewal of the people, which is celebrated here in verse 7. The bride of Jesus, it, it, it tells us that the bride of Jesus, who is the church, has been made ready for her groom. She's been clothed in these wonderful, beautiful, fine, pure linens. The most beautiful wedding gown you've ever seen, she's presented it. And, it, and, and the language here says that she's been granted to be presented in that way. In other words, that she has been given the righteousness of Jesus so that she could stand in relationship with him. It's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of the righteousness of Jesus covering us so that we can come to him in full faith and, and, and in full holiness and full righteousness, completely reconciled to him with no barrier of sin or evil or doubt or fear in the way. It's the relationship and the communion that we have all longed for since the fall broke it all in the beginning. And I think there's an important point to consider in all of this. It says the righteous deeds of the saints then are what is seen. And so what does it mean for the righteous deeds of the saints to be pictured in this linen? Well, I think what, I think, I think what this means, and what this, I think what this clearly seems to mean, I should say, is that uh, this refers to the faithfulness of the church. In living through and being faithful and remaining faithful to Jesus throughout, uh, throughout this age. Okay, so in verse 10, for example, the righteous deeds of the saints are defined as holding to the testimony of Jesus. This is not saying that the righteous deeds have made the bride righteous before Jesus. What it's saying is that the, the righteousness of Jesus is what covers the bride, and then what displays the fact that she is truly his and faithful to him is the fact that the righteous deeds are what kind of go in front of her, are what are presented. And the righteous deeds are defined as the faithful testimony to Jesus in the face of persecution, in the face of uh, temptation, in the face of all kinds of other things that, of course, we all face in following Jesus in this world. And so when you get to the end of it, though, there will be this judgment and this picture of those who are truly faithful to Jesus being presented before him as righteous. And so the marriage imagery that's used here presents to us this kind of heavenly and eternal love story. And it's a commitment 
that's made for eternity, a love relationship between Jesus and his church where he once and for all declares that his true bride, who his true bride is at the final judgment. And he'll bring his bride to a place that he's prepared for her. He'll bring her to the new creation, the new heaven and earth that, of course, will, again, it's going to be described here in a couple of chapters. And here they get married in chapter 19, and there in verse 21 is where he takes her to be with him forever in the place that he has made for her. This is why verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. They're not merely invited as guests, but they are the bride herself who gets to enjoy intimate communion with the bridegroom who is Jesus. And those who, have been, those who are invited are be those who have shown their faithful love for Jesus throughout the age. So speaking of staying faithful, let's look at the third scene now from this chapter. This last scene here, uh, the second half of Revelation 19. A scene where we see, it's another judgment scene, but it's a scene where we see Jesus described as faithful and true. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one who is sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, all, of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army, against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image." Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And of course, this third scene, again, is another judgment scene in Revelation. And at first glance, as we read this, right, it seems like another kind of run-of-the-mill Revelation judgment scene, right? There's horses, which we've seen, there's a horse, which we've seen many times. We've seen horses going out to execute judgment several times throughout uh, this book. But, what, what is, but there are some important distinctions in this account. And one of them, first of all, is that Jesus himself is the horse rider this time. All right, and he rides out on a, a white horse to judge the false prophet and the beast. In other words, the, the two beasts, the false prophet and the Antichrist. Now there are some important details about Jesus' actions and appearance here, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But notice the first thing that we're told here is that he is called faithful and true. Now, in our translation, the words faithful and true are capitalized, and hopefully they're capitalized in your translations as well if you're reading from a different translation. But here's the point. The point is, is that these are actually titles. These are names for Jesus. It's different than just saying kind of this is what Jesus does. He does faithful things, and he does things that are true. This is actually the nature of who Jesus is, that Jesus is true, that he is faithful. It is his name. He wears it as a name, which is a, a, a kind of a marker, obviously, of his character. 
makes me think about when Jesus says, I am the truth. It's more than just a statement of, I teach the truth. It is that he is the very embodiment of God's truth. And you see the theme of truth really work its way throughout this scene. First of all, another name that Jesus has given is the word of God. Uh, you see the way, that he, uh, the way that he fights and the way that he engages in war is through a sword that comes out of his mouth. Might remind us of a place like Hebrews chapter 4, which says that the word of God is like a double-edged sword. And in fact, of course, the fact that it comes from Jesus' mouth is, is, is kind of further concretes the, concretes the idea that this is, where, that this is the, where the focus is on. It's on God's truth. And then he goes out to defeat the false prophet by the truth, by the word of God. And I think this is the second place that we see Jesus being celebrated for his truth, but especially in this scene, when you join it all together, what you see is how closely truth is identified with the action of judgment here. And it's not only the action of judgment, but it's actually the person of Christ. Because as Jesus is bringing judgment with fire in his eyes, this time he goes after the false prophet and his deception and his lies to remove that from creation. So we've got Babylon, right? all the power, greed, and justice, corruption that she represents, all the idolatry that she represents, removed first in judgment. And then we get sec- the second scene we get is the deception and the lies that prop up all of that being removed from creation. And what that's doing is preparing us for a new creation that is full of God's truth everywhere. Remember, we've talked about the fact that when we get to these new creation passages, we're going to see the celebration of the fact that God's glory goes into every corner of that creation. God's glory is essentially his character. And part of God's character is the fact that he is truth. I mean, imagine a world that you live in where everything is true. Everything you hear, everything you see is true. You don't have to question it. You don't have to worry about if it's fake news. You don't have to worry about if someone has an agenda behind it. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're understanding it correctly. Or, or, you know, it's truth. Everywhere you go, it's true. And this is what is being presented for us here, that the deception and lies will be removed forever. And that it's at the heart of who God is. That everything that God is, is true. He is the expression of truth, which is why, of course, Jesus can say, I am truth, as a statement of who he is. Not merely as a teacher of the truth, but as the actual embodiment of truth himself. The word of God became flesh. Now there is, there is according to the Bible, so according to the Bible then, there are not like a series of a bunch of different truths where one truth is just truer than the others. Really, there is God who is truth, and then there's just everything else. There are some aspects of a mixture of truth. There are some that are anti-truth, some things that are lies, some things that get part of the truth but then have a mixture of deception and lie in it. But in the end, it's just God who is truth and then everything that is not God is, 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 has some aspect or mixture of untruth in it. If you think about it, it makes sense because, look, God is the self-existent one. He is the one who is the creator of all things. He is the one who is sovereign. So in him is actually truth. You see this represented in Jesus as well in a couple different places. Sovereignty and truth being joined together. Sovereignty and promises being joined together. First of all, all the many diadems that Jesus is wearing on his head, all the crowns that he's wearing on his head, that seem to be unlimited in this case. And then also the fact that he is identified as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. That sovereignty and truth, sovereignty and promise go hand in hand. So if Jesus is true, how does this also connect to him being faithful? Well, it connects to him being faithful in terms of the promises of God. That what God has promised 
we can be sure will be true in the end. Because God tells the truth, because God is sovereign, and God has the actual ability to make it happen. Think about it this way, how, how important that is when it comes to truth actually uh, taking root and truth actually being our reality and prom- the promises of God being true and all the rest. In order for God to make good on his promises, he needs to be sovereign. And think about it this way. You and I can't do that same kind of thing because we're not sovereign, right? If I were to promise you that something were to happen at some point in the future, in order for that thing actually to happen, I'd have to be in control of all the factors that might change that result. And if I'm not, of course, I run the risk of my promise being false, my promise not being exactly the way that I promised that it would turn out. In fact, we're in the March Madness season right now, and so March Madness it may seem weird to you, but March Madness made me think about sovereignty uh, this past, <laughs> past couple weeks, right? Because every time I sit down and I fill out my March ba- uh, Madness bracket, and we've all, many, many, many of us have done this within the church uh, the past couple weeks, um, and you may not think about it this way. It may be something that's fun for you. You pick mascots or colors or whatever it may be. Uh, or you put together some math algorithm that leads you through it. But for me, like, I watch a lot of college basketball. I consider myself a college basketball fan. And so almost all of those teams, maybe except for, like, St. Peter's, obviously, I've watched this past year at some point or another. I'll actually, in the college basketball season, think to myself, there's some random game with, like, Arkansas and LSU that I could care nothing about on a Thursday night, but I'm going to turn that on and watch a few minutes of it so that I can prepare myself for March Madness and I can make sure I pick the right team. So I consider myself, you know, a college basketball fan. Not really an expert, but a fan. And so when I sit down and I map out my bracket, there's a reason for every single team that I pick, right? It's essentially my truth that I've spoken into each one of these things. You can even ask me, like, why is it that you've picked this team? Well, I could tell you exactly why I picked this team over that team. And I could look at my bracket at the end and basically lay out this sovereign plan for how I believe that the tournament is going to go. And even though I know there's like something like one in a 10 billion chance that I'll get every game right, I think it's even higher than that. I think, if, I think it's like getting struck by lightning 100 times in a row is like the odds that you have of picking every game correctly. I still look at my final product and think to myself, this is my sovereign plan. I don't call it that, but I think about it, right? This is how exactly it's going to happen and turn out. Now what God is doing here in Revelation is telling us that when we see his promises come true, that he actually is the one who brings it all together because he is sovereign. So for God, this is why truth is so important because truth is personal, but truth is also personal in his relationship to being faithful to us. I think this is important for us to think about because so many times we tend to think that we understand truth better than we do as human beings. In fact, in many ways, we believe we're arbiters of truth in some cases. So when we, so even when it comes to reading the Bible, like we'll read the Bible and we'll see something that we feel like is wise and we affirm that as being wise, like this really spoke to me, this really resonated with me, and so that makes it true. (laughs) Look, it's true whether or not it resonated with you or not. I get the reality that as we read the Bible, there are certain things that speak to us and it's like, man, this is really practical and wise and we can recognize that. There's a lot of places where that goes. But the danger in looking at God's words and then evaluating them and whether or not they speak to me so that I can determine whether or not they're true for my life is a very dangerous thing to do because it places us as judges of the truth. And people do this all the time. We might often do this with parts of the Bible that we have a hard time understanding or coming to terms with. Maybe there's a lot of places in Revelation that that's felt like for you. At times just kind of picking or choosing what we believe God really says about a certain thing. And I think when we do that, we fall under a similar kind of sin as 
happened in the original garden, which is that we begin to say that we know good from evil, and then we begin to question God. Did God really say that? Does God really mean that? And the reality of this is what happens in the end is that we end up actually (laughs) reinforcing some of the lies that we believe with God's truth on top of it, and that's a really dangerous place to be. You know, throughout human history, people have tried to arrive at truth outside of God, obviously. And, I, and so, in a lot of ways, I find it interesting to trace human thought because in the end, what we see throughout history is that these questions are asked over and over again. Similar questions to what we asked at the beginning. What is truth? Right? Not necessarily asking about, you know, why is the Bible true, but people still ask that central question, what is truth? And throughout human history and in philosophy, people have arrived at different places in that way. Right? So they'll latch on to something they believe that is true, and it's a kernel or a statement of truth, and then what happens inevitably is they'll build a system of thought around it, a philosophy, and in some cases those philosophies actually become a movement that redefine human thought throughout history. This has happened countless times throughout human history. So for instance, one of the symptoms of thought, uh, systems of thought that has been most influential in the modern Western world is something you've probably heard of, a system of thought called modernism. Of course, we also have pre-modernism and post-modernism. Those are a little bit harder to define. Modernism is actually really easy to define in some ways because at its core, we can kind of attribute it back to a man by the name, a philosopher by the name of Rene Descartes in the 1600s. When Rene Descartes was faced with this question of what is true, his answer was essentially this. He said a little more than this, but this is what it boils down to. I think, therefore I am. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how, how revolutionary of a statement that was at the time But up to that point in human history, it was commonly understood that you found truth outside of yourself. So in other words, you look to a creator, you look to the gods, you look to a king or a kingdom, you even look to a community or a tribe or a family to try to understand what was true about the world that you're living in, what was true about yourself. What what Descartes did with that statement is he took it, he took the origin of truth from outside and placed it inside the individual. So that now, and as this has kind of moved through history, it was joined by not only rational thought, but also kind of emotionalism during the Romanticism period. And so what happens now is that we are now at a place where, in many cases, truth begins on the inside. I am the arbiter of my own truth. I think, therefore I am. I feel, therefore I am. In those kinds of ways. Right? And what Descartes believed is ultimately that human beings are rational, truth-telling beings. And so I can rely on my mind to guide me to the truth. Or I can rely on my feelings, emotions, to guide me to the truth. The problem with that is that it overestimates the fact that we are actually rational, truth-telling beings. As a staff, we're reading this book called Live No Lies by uh, Pastor uh, John Mark Comer. I would encourage you to read it if you're looking for a book on this subject. But listen to what he says about our own ability to know truth from inside of us. He says that as human beings, we prefer to think of ourselves as rational individualists rather than the emotional, relational, and easily manipulated social creatures that we actually are. You know, when our staff read this, I got to admit, there was some pain as we read these words, especially that last piece there about being easily manipulated social creatures. You may or may not agree with his assessment on this, but I got to tell you that I believe that this is essentially true. Because it's backed up by Scripture. If you read through the Bible, notice how many times God tells us, do not be deceived. Do not be fooled. Over and over again, watch out for false teachers who will come and prey upon you because they will trick you. You are subject to deception. And not only are you subject to deception, but when it takes root in your hearts, it can destroy you. 
In fact, you could argue that a lot of the New Testament is just all about God reminding us of the truth of the gospel because he knows how easy it is for us to forget and be deceived. As Comer says, our new environment that we live in is one in which a battle is raging between truth and lies, and truth is losing. Disinformation, or in the language of Scripture, deception, right? deception of the false prophet in Revelation, is at the root of almost every single problem we face in our society and our souls. And look, I think the new environment that he refers to is largely the fruit of a way of thinking that has permeated our world since Descartes declared the individual human to be the origin of truth. And although there is a lot to how this has evolved over time, we are able to easily see it in the way that it has, has, kind of, has kind of permeated our culture today. In other words, even in the language that we use when we talk about truth, you're much more likely to hear somebody say, my truth or your truth, than you are the truth. Right? And as we move on down this road, theoretically, if you move down that direction, what you realize is that if there's 7 billion people on this planet, theoretically, there are 7 billion different truths to discover in this world. Is that what we're made to believe? Now, we can pull at that thread for a while, but to bring it all back to this point, here's the thing. I think it's more appropriate for us to say that, I, I would say there is one thing that the, the my truth and your truth thing gets right. It's that nobody has a monopoly, no human being has monopoly on truth. All of, us, all of us see through a mirror dimly, as Paul said. None of us understand fully, completely the mind of God. So I appreciate the humility in all of that. But I think rather than saying there could be 7 billion different truths, I think what we should say is that there are 7 billion different understandings of the one truth, the truth that is God. And here's a very simplified analogy for you. I don't want to stretch it too far. But let's just say that God's truth, God himself, is like a large mountain. A mountain that can fit 7 billion people on it. So imagine how big that mountain would be. Right, and all of us at any given time are climbing that mountain, and depending on where you're at, right, uh, depending on where you're at, whether you're up, down, north, south, east, or west, you may see a different aspect, a different perspective of truth, right? For Christians, we understand this to be God, God's truth, God's word that guides us. For other people, they just kind of see truth from the perspective that they're looking from on the mountain. So we can all have different understandings of the truth, but, so we can all have different understandings of the truth depending on where you are. But here's the thing is that when it comes to the end of it, what we're ultimately trying to discover as Christians and what the Bible says to us is that we are trying to understand this mountain as best we can as God's truth. And we can no, ma and we can no greater build a, uh, uh, no easier build a mountain that can fit seven million mountain climbers on it than we can invent our own truth. In other words, we are not mountain builders, we are mountain climbers. That is our role, and that is our understanding of truth in this world. So when it comes to the Bible, we don't just figure out what is true by making something that God says and then taking something God says and then evaluating it by my own truth. Instead, we take the God who reveals himself in his word to be the one who is telling us what is actually true. I think this is important to think about as we finish this morning and we finish Revelation 19. This whole section is about God's promise to bring what is good. This is what his people are celebrating. They're not just celebrating the fact that God is one, our side is one. They're celebrating the fact that they finally get to live in a world that God is making a way for a world where they can be redeemed and reconciled to him forever. In a world that is erased of, of immorality, a world that is erased of, uh, of idolatry, a world that is full of truth, where deception and lies have been judged once and forever. According to Comer, 
he says this about, and, and, and look, what they're, what they're, look, what they're celebrating is the flourishing and the celebration of what happens when truth reigns. This is what Comer says. He says, when we believe truth, that is ideas that correspond to reality, we show up to a reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to God in a way that is congruent with the Creator's wisdom and good intentions for His creation. As a result, we tend to be happy. But when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, then tragically we open our bodies to let those lies and let them into our muscle memories. We allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality, and as a result, we struggle to survive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. This is why God wants us to know the truth and why Jesus says that the truth will set us free. Because we were made for reality, the light of reality, not for the darkness and the confusion of illusion and lies and deception. So God tells us the truth because he loves us. And he not only tells us, and even when the truth doesn't make sense in the world that we live in, because if we live out the truth, there's going to be a lot of things around us that are shrouded in darkness and deception, and it won't always work the way that we think it should work in those kinds of ways. Truth is something that God gives us because he loves us. And I want to leave you just with this idea about how to, how to kind of live faithfully in the truth. Um, if we can approach God's words with humility, not asking God if he wants to ex expose a lie in us, but actually, actually asking him, Lord, when are you going to expose a lie? Assuming the reality that in some ways, every single moment, for every single one of us, we are believing some kinds of lies that are in us. Comer says this, There is not a soul I know who is not living in, at some level, bondage to lies. Now that may be extreme language, you may not consider yourself as a person who lives in bondage to lies, but I think there is some truth in that. And if you'll just go with me in this, that at any given time, we are all at, at any given time believing some mixture of a lie. And so when we come to God's word, it's coming to God's word actually asking God to reveal what those lies are. Not, Lord, if I have a lie in me, but what is that lie? And Lord, where are you going to expose it in my heart? And I want to finish with this, just quickly with this example. He gives an example of what this might look like. And there's three steps to this. At some point, I'm probably going to have to start paying John Mark Comer some royalties because I think I've used a lot of his stuff. But it's so good, I don't care. Um, his example is this, right? Think about a thought or a feeling or a temptation that might come to your mind. In other words, something that you know is wrong or burdensome or that might lead you into sin. His example is just kind of, in somewhat of a vanilla way, I'm worried about losing my job and not being able to make my car payment. That's the thought that I'm aware of, right? And then from that point, once that thought is identified, you should ask, what is the lie beneath that thought or feeling or temptation? Uh, with the same example, that lie might be my safety and my security are in my job and owning newer, nicer things will make me happy. Now, once we've identified the lie, then we work on responding to the lie with the truth. Again, in this case, it might be something like, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, according to Hebrews 13. And his presence and promises are enough. So there's the three questions there. I want to encourage you from this point forward. Like, you can sit before God's word. The next time you open God's word during a devotional, the next time you open God's word during a Bible study, maybe you go home tonight and you're reading through God's word. I would encourage you 
Say a prayer similar to this. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open my eyes to not if there is a lie in me, but expose the lies that are in me and and help me to replace it with your wisdom and truth. God tells us the truth because he loves us. It's a part of who he is, and if we're to understand what it means to be faithful to God and what it means for God's glory to reign in our lives, we have to understand his truth. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray this, uh, this simple prayer. Uh, Father, coming to you humbly and acknowledging the fact that um, our world is full of lies, that we are creatures who are easily manipulated, that we are creatures who often hide the lies in our hearts that you want to expose. And if we're really honest with ourselves, Lord, we hold on to the lies, even some of the lies that we know are lies, because in some way um, we delight in them, for lack of a better term. We believe in them. And Lord, I pray that you would do the work of helping us to understand, first of all, you are doing this because you love us. You tell us the truth because you love us. There's no other motivation, no other reason than to show us how much you love us and to pull us out of the darkness of deception so that we can live in the truth of the light. And Lord, where we have trouble living out the truth in the world around us, because again, the world is so full of that kind of deception, we ask for your, um, for your faithfulness to guide us. We ask, Lord, that we would have uh, perseverance in the way that we live. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see images like this, call them back to mind, like in Revelation 19, where one day your truth will reign in every aspect of creation, and it's a good thing that that is true. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. All right, thanks guys. Great, great to see all of you here this morning. I've kept you way too long, and so we're just going to say quickly, uh, we love you. If you need prayer, the Douglases are here to pray with you. They're our prayer partners. Again, we have our prayer request cards that are located on the table as you leave here this morning. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.